Well, this morning we are continuing this series, a uh, short series through the book of Romans. So as you're turning there, Romans 2 is what we're looking at. Decided this week as I was meeting with, with Trevor and Zach on Wednesdays, we've been reading through the passage and, and talking through uh, what's going to be preached that I can't stop at Romans 2. Because the argument doesn't stop. So my plan is, and just letting you know, in January, because I already had a series planned for Christmas, we're going to go back to Romans in chapter 3, and then I'll, I'll, I'll go somewhere else. So, uh, and, I'm, and I'm doing that because you'll see as we're in Romans 2, it's like we're being led every step of the way of his argument. And if I leave you at the end of 2, you're going to revolt. I would revolt. So a year ago, uh, one of my longtime dreams came true. I was selected for jury duty. I'm not joking. It's been a dream for a long time. As my wife was selected five times, um, I think all four pregnancies, and once while we were in Sweden and she didn't serve, I was upset every time. Why won't they pick me? Uh, you might find it strange, but I've, I've wanted to. Maybe you feel like you just want to get out of it, and in that case, I'm going to chastise you. Any time a secular government, court system, uh, a, a godless system comes and says to you, Christian, come serve to tell us wrong versus right, friend, you better not find a way out. What a glorious privilege we have as Christians to serve in this. And so I jumped at it. I had a pastor friend down the street who was very upset with me because see, he hasn't been selected. But his associate was. He was in the same pool as mine. The bummer, of course, and this is maybe where you say, I don't want to serve in jury duty, is that you just sit around and wait. You just sit around a lot of waiting. But for me, it gave me a lot of opportunity to read. I wrote a sermon in the jury room. And it was an opportunity for me to experience what I'd longed to of, of this idea of truth and justice. But one thing that I found was interesting is that right away, you know, before selection, was the, the, the instructions that were given to the juror. If you've ever served, you've heard these. They want jurors who are unbiased, or at least understand their bias, and won't let their bias affect their judgment on the case. I found that funny. I've given my life to study and to teach God's Word and, and to do counseling, and so with that, I've spent a lot of time with people people I teach and counsel and lead and, Lord willing, given godly instruction to. And the more time I spend with myself and understanding myself, and the more time I spend with other people, there is no human being who is unbiased. In fact, it's impossible for us as humans to be unbiased. As a result of the fall, we all have biases. We're partial to some things. We're partial to people. We're most biased with ourselves. No matter how hard we try as humans, we always end up being really biased to, towards us. If you're uncertain of that and you desire to get married someday, you will find out that you have strong biases towards yourself. And because we're biased and, and prejudiced in some ways, we tend to think that God is just like us in his view of how we view things, that he's, he agrees with our assessment of ourselves. That he thinks of us the same way we think of ourselves. But as we saw last week at the end of uh, the first section in Romans 2, God shows no partiality. Very clear. God is completely unbiased. He is the only one who can, can be that way. 
He is not phased by us and our good lives and our family history or our church attendance. He sees right through all of that. And God's standard is sure and it's set. And we see in the Bible that people will, will be saved by perfect law keeping. That is how salvation comes. Perhaps that's shocking to you this morning. I speak truth. We won't be, be saved because of our upbringing or our connections to the church or our flawless Bible reading plans that we get done every year. But we are saved through perfect law keeping. And yet, if we're honest, we know we can't do that. We've never been able to do that. We cannot obey perfectly. We're not perfect. We're not even close to being perfect. So what hope do we have then? Hopefully, I'll be able to answer that question this morning. Here's the main idea. Perfect law-keeping saves. And here's the questions that I seek to answer through that. So hopefully, as we understand this main idea, we'll walk through the passage. You'll understand, and you're not going to walk out saying that Jeff's just speaking a bunch of heresy. Question one, will knowing the law save you? Paul's going to deal with this. Question two, will your conscience excuse you? Question three, will Jesus give you a pass? So we were going to read all of two, not well, at least to where we're going to end today. So we're going to start at verse one again and read verses one through 16. And we're going to look at verses 12 through 16 for the majority of our time. Okay. So if you haven't turned already, turn to Romans chapter two. You will definitely be helped by having a Bible open as we read. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who, see, who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So, question one in verses 12 and 13, will knowing the law save you? When we come back to this book, we come back to this letter that's addressed to the Gentiles primarily in chapter 1, but then Paul turns his attention, as we'll find out through the length of chapter 2 and into chapter 3, that the Jews are the focus here for chapter 2. And Paul is building an argument that he won't finish until the end of chapter 3. That's part of the reason why I'm going to continue on. 
For many of the Jews of the day, when Paul is talking about salvation and rescue, they would automatically believe that they were saved because of who they were, because of what they had. They were God's chosen people, and they had the law given to them. For Paul to say in verse 11 that God is impartial in his judgment on that day of wrath is not whether some person falls within the the circle of God's people Israel, but if they sinned, that's what they'll be judged of. Look again at verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. See, the Jews had access to God's law every week when it was read to them. The, the law was the great feature of the Jewish life and culture that would bring distinction for God's people from the other people that surrounded them. And being within the hearing and, and reading of the law was a blessing to God's people. They were chosen to receive the law, but they were also chosen to obey the law. There's an issue that we see in this first point. It's not the law, but it's the response to the law for the people of God. They, they, they perhaps believed, I think, from Paul's argument here as a Jew, that, that because the law had been given to them, that somehow saved them. It, it, would, it would redeem them. And Paul is telling them, no matter if they have the law or not, judgment is coming. See, judgment is only concerned about sin. It doesn't matter who you are or where you came from, what family you had, or how much knowledge you possess. The great, the great question here is, do you sin, and what have you done with your sin? What will you do with your sin? If you have sinned, you'll be judged according to your sin, plain and simple. There's no respect of persons when it comes to God's judgment against sin. So what hope do we have when we sin? Well, what do we talk about when we say sin? What does that mean? Evidence from Greco-Roman and Jewish sources indicates the verb sin had the same meaning across many cultures. It means a failure to meet a standard, to, to miss the mark, or to transgress. So sinning without the law describes the sort of behavior as listed in Romans 1, 18 through 32. And sin had been defined for the Jew. It had been codified. It had been made perfectly plain and clear, so there was no excuse for them. We have all sinned. Every one of us in this room has sinned, no matter your age or stage in life. So what do we do with our sin? What were the original recipients of this letter to do with their sin? How are they going to keep the law? So Paul here is making great efforts in this section to separate the Jew and Gentile in these verses. The, the, the normal Jew had possession of the law, but the, the normal Gentile didn't. The Jews had their weekly gathering to sit under the reading and explanation of the law, which would expose their sin, but Gentiles didn't have that opportunity. But as we will see in our next point, sometimes Gentiles would obey the law, even though they didn't have full access to the law. So there's a method to Paul's madness here. We won't see that fully till chapter 3, so you have, you have to stick with us. Because God is imp- impartial, 
Both the Gentiles and Jews will be judged based upon the amount of revelation they have access to and the response to that revelation. Outward religious privilege and achievement cannot and will not make us right with God concerning our sin. So knowing and having the law will not protect those who refuse to obey the law because it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. See, they have the law. What Paul is saying is they didn't respond to the law. They didn't obey the law. And, and, and they had the law and the right response of having the law, having what God had set forth for how they were to live, was to obey the law. This is repeated over and over to the Jews. Listen to Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And, and these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk to them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. There was an assumption that, that once you began hearing the law taught and read and expounded, that you would want to obey the law to please God in his great mercy towards you. But if you've spent any time around another human, you know that assumptions are dangerous. Just because they were around the law did not equal obedience to the law in a turning from sin. Don't get me wrong, Paul's point is, is not that a, a, a non-religious person can live a good life even though they, and, and live in a way that can get them into the kingdom of God. Far from it. And he'll elaborate more here. He, he's giving evidence, as he said earlier, and we'll look at the second point, of the common good that happens to the wor- in the world. We find pagans with good human morality who take care of their children, who don't steal, who, who protect others. And so there's a viewpoint that Paul is sharing in the next few verses that the law in some veiled form is written in their hearts. And a Gentile may occasionally live a virtuous life, but that isn't sufficient for salvation from their rejection of God. So Paul ends there in verse 13 by saying doers of the law will be justified. So he's not regarding these, these Gentiles who had a portion of it or these Jews who uh, uh, could do this in themselves. But he is making a statement that perfect law-keeping saves. It's true. Doers of the law will be justified. But in Paul's thinking, this involves such complete obedience to God that no mere human had achieved that standard. But Paul gets to it later in Romans. There was one. There was one God-man who had. And Paul would write a number of chapters later in Romans 8. Verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. See, the ground for justification is the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ perfectly obeyed the law in every way. Verse 3, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us 
who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. See, Jesus lived perfectly and perfectly kept the law in every way. And he was the only one who could do this. So it's true, perfect law-keeping saves. And Jesus shares with us. If you're not a Christian this morning here, I need to ask, are you ready to claim that you always obey all of God's word all the time? If not, you need to run to Jesus for shelter. That's what we do with our sin. You know, when we hear the bad news of our sin and we think there is no hope, there is, and it's only found in Jesus Christ. You will only be found righteous in God's sight on that judgment day if you are found to be trusting in Jesus Christ alone. You and I, we cannot live perfectly, which the law required. So our only hope is Jesus. So we go to him and we confess our sin of trying to do it on our own, trying to define our life by our own standards, and we humble ourselves and place our faith in him. So I encourage you to do that today, friend. So the question, will knowing the law save you? The answer is no. But knowing and trusting in Jesus will save you. What about the second question? Will your conscience excuse you? Number two. What is the conscience? That's a very good question and one that I could spend a long time on. There's a number of good books that talk about it. Andy Nacelli has a book, a really good book on conscience. But our conscience is a dimension that bears witness to the presence of a built-in moral uh, awareness, a moral compass that each of us has. Conscience is not an independent way of knowing God's will, but it's simply a, a knowledge shared with oneself on whether we've done something wrong or right. Uh, we could say that the conscience is kind of like a, a warning light system, one that you have in your car, right? We have that built in in ourselves. But the conscience is, is not God, and it's not infallible. It can be broken. Actually, Paul says later in, in Second Timothy, 1 Timothy, the, the conscience can be seared. Those false teachers that continue to, to teach in ways that's contrary to, to God's word, Paul warns and says their conscience can be seared, mean set in that way. So our consciences always need to be aligned with God's word. But they're not final. As we read in chapter 1, some have consciences, as we read, that are obviously not aligned with God's word. And, and, and even though God has shown himself to them, he lists out in, in chapter 1, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Chapter 1, 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, but they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immoral God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Stop there. They have enough knowledge of, of God, but they suppress the truth of God. And, and they stifle any right response to him. And now Paul turns the corner here in chapter 2, verse 14, to, to talk about this. Not, not everyone suppresses the truth. 
Verse 14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law, this is chapter 2, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. What he's saying here, I believe, is that all people have some form of right and wrong, small and big. We see that in the world. C.S. Lewis describes this beautifully and clearly at the beginning of his book, Mere Christianity. If you haven't read it, you probably should. Here's what he says. Everyone has heard people quarreling or fighting, and they say things like this. How'd you like it if anyone did that same thing to you? Or they say, that's my seat. I was there first. Or leave him alone. He isn't doing you any harm. Or give me a bit of your orange. I gave you a bit of mine. He writes, now what interests me about these remarks is that the man who makes them is not merely saying that other man's behavior does not happen to please him. He's appealing to some kind of standard of behavior which he expects the other man to know about. We've seen it in the world, right? You've experienced it. you experienced it with young children even as they don't understand right from wrong. They do. When you take something that's theirs, they're going to let you know. It can be assumed even without explaining the differences. I remember a number of years ago going to a football game with Mike here. I think this is probably the first one we went to. And he warned me that there was a season ticket holder that, that sat next to him of his behavior is not good. I'm not saying all Seahawks fans are like that. As this man would drink a lot and prefer to use language that is not appropriate for Sunday services. And when we sat down, the man came, already kind of charged up with beer in hand, and Mike turns and says, hey, this is Jeff, my pastor. He didn't scream or drink anymore the rest of the game. It's funny, right? I mean, I, I found that interesting. Like somehow the Pope is sitting next to him or something. Thou shall not cuss in front of a pastor. There was some standard he had, I think. I didn't climb into his mind, but there was some standard or conscience or conflicting thoughts that were judging him at that moment. He didn't speak any of this out loud. You know, and it wasn't me. I was there to see the Lions lose, so I wasn't saying anything to the guy. But he responded differently. There was conscience in this man. And I wonder if in that moment his, his conscience was working overtime. Conflicting thoughts. Paul says that when a person who knows nothing of God and does what God desires in a situation because they know it's the right thing to do, they show that the work of law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. Paul's argument here is not that the Gentiles don't sin, but instead they don't sin every moment of every day. Their moral conscience is working that allows them in some way to say no to certain sins and to choose to do what's right in certain situations. But we need to understand that their consciences aren't perfect and they don't obey them all the time. This is part of the reason I think that maybe you've experienced, I have, in sharing the gospel with people. Is, is that you go and, and, and you, they recognize in themselves, in their own conscience, I'm not that bad. And I believe that there's many people, coworkers and neighbors, who are actually 
tax-paying, uh, love their kids, they, they, they serve in a community, they do all the things that are good and right, and they look at our gospel presentation of them being opposed to God and think, you're out to lunch. Why is God angry at me? They're not as bad, and they don't sin in such big ways. So why isn't God thankful for them? They're not as bad as so-and-so. They look at their life and, and see fairness only by their own standard and not by the standard of God's Word. They, they definitely want a standard. Like everyone wants a standard to live by. They just want to be the author of that standard. Aristotle thought that some people were so virtuous that they didn't need laws. He says, for they are themselves a law. And that has been largely true in our world. Right? We see that all the time. But this isn't what Paul is proposing here. What Paul is saying most likely here is that the occasional non-Jew would obey the Torah as their natural law within themselves and their conscience would allow them. But that won't ultimately save them in the final day of judgment. Ultimately, our consciences will not excuse us. And we will never meet the standard of God's law all by ourselves. We need God's word. That's why God gave it to us. That's why he gave it to the people of Israel. That's why he expected them to respond in light of it. Now you need to understand this. The more light one person has, the greater responsibility they have to obey it. God demands, and he demanded more of the Jew than he demanded of the Gentile because he had given more to the Jew. Every time the law had been read, the responsibility had been increased. To much is given, much is required. This was an issue in Jesus' day with the Pharisees. They had the law and they added to it and they ignored the truth of God's word. They ignored Jesus and they were entrusted with the law and they, they squandered it. The same is for you this morning, friend. Every time you and I hear the gospel, our responsibility to respond increases. The more and you the more that you and I hear God's word proclaimed and given to us, and the clearer our understanding of it grows, then it's natural that the responsibility to respond to it grows as well. And the gospel demands a response. It is not a suggestion. I hope you never understand that from me or for anyone that preaches in this pulpit. The gospel is not, consider doing this. The gospel is a demand on our life to repent of our sins and to trust in Christ. And it demands a response. So what do you do when you hear the gospel? If you're here and you're not a Christian, your responsibility after hearing the gospel is to repent of your sin, of trusting in yourself, and to trust in Jesus Christ alone. 
And if you're here and you are a Christian, it's to respond in worship because you are trusting in Christ and not yourself. See, it's, that, that's faith growing in us as Christians. It's not that we, we're, we prayed the prayer when we were seven, we got entrance in, we got the little certificate, we're good. We can check out when Pastor Jeff gets to the gospel, because I already did that, that was kind of cool. No, every time it's proclaimed, we glory in that, and our faith is renewed, and it grows, because we're continuing to trust in Jesus Christ. And we praise God for his salvation of us. We are humbled even more that he would even save us. Friend, if you're bored when the pastor or speaker gets to the gospel, perhaps you're really not trusting in Jesus. Perhaps you're trusting in that response when you were young. And my call to you is to turn to Christ, to trust in him. He's not frustrated with you. He's not upset. He's not irritated. The call is the same for you now, to trust in him alone. And he saves. So will our consciences excuse us from trusting in God for salvation? No. Our conflicting thoughts push us toward him. And the right response is to repent. So the last question Will Jesus give, give us a pass? Will he give you a pass that day? Verse 16. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This is an important verse for us to consider. First, why does Paul use the word my gospel here? Because God's just judgment is fundamental to his declaration about God's Son. Without judgment, salvation has no meaning. Without the reality of God's Present and future wrath, the cross is emptied of its power and glory. Judgment is necessary to prove God's justice towards sin. And this is what Paul has been explaining. So when he says, my gospel, he's he's walking through this idea of judgment that he started here in verse 1 of chapter 2. He wants to make sure that, uh, that we as a church understand that judgment is part of the gospel. Because in judgment, we see more clearly and how beautiful God's salvation is of us. The second thing I want you to notice is who is the one who will judge us? The Lord Jesus Christ. He's not only our Savior, but he's going to be our judge. He said as much in John 5.22, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. 5.26, 5.26.27, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he's given him authority to execute judgment because he's the Son of Man. Jesus Christ will be our judge. And why is Jesus best qualified to be our judge? Because he knows us most intimately. Christ was under the law when he came low to earth. And so his judgment is fair. He knows us. Christ knows what pressure we face as humans. He has felt that weight walking on earth. So he is best suited to be judge over men and women. 
And how will he judge us? What will he know? He says he knows the secrets of men. That's a scary phrase, if we're honest. It's said to remind us that we're not only to be judged by our actions and our words, but by our thoughts as well. We will be judged by everything that is true about us. Matthew 12 talks about this warning of, of our lives. He says this, either, the, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on that day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. Jesus is informing us in that passage. Primarily, he's speaking to those that said they knew God and were not living uh, as they know God. But he's showing us with our words and even our actions that we could possibly fool people here on earth with sincerity. But God knows us all the way deep down inside of us. Outside of Jesus Christ, we will be bad trees continually producing bad fruit. No matter how good we try to hide ourselves, we will ultimately be exposed by the production of fruit. But it gets worse for those who think they can fool everyone and even fool God. Jesus says in the day of judgment, everyone will give an account for every word. And then as we see in Romans 2, every word that we even thought. We will give an account for every careless thought that no person has ever heard. We will give an account for our imagination. The evil thoughts that we've harbored. Things that we've dwelled on. We will give an account for our imagination. I mean, think through that. Jesus sees it all, and none of it can be hidden. I don't know about you, but when I thought through this this week, I thought, what hope do I have now? What hope do I have before that day? Paul, Paul wrote, writes to us, in, to the Corinthians, in Paul, 2 Corinthians 5, or 10, 5. He says we're to take every thought captive to obey Christ. Some of us will stand before God on that day and realize that we never sinned that way, but we did chase that sin in our minds and even entertaining it at length. How often do you think and dwell on sin? Either your own future plans to sin or the sins of others. How often are you drawn to view sin, to picture it, to spend time looking at it on your phone. So much of our lives is taken up with what our eyes see and allowing our minds to wander and being entertained by the sin of others. And so it seems that we're without hope. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, as I said, that we're to take every thought captive 
And what that means, friends, for all of us, is we're to make war against our thoughts. To make war. To take those thoughts captive with the help of the Spirit. This is not a passive thing. I have thoughts just like you, so I know. This is not a passive thing. This is an area where we need to make war and to ask God for continued help. To be serious about sin, friends. And to ask friends to pray for you and to hold you accountable. See, we learn in this verse, very soberly, that there are skeletons in everyone's closet and Jesus has the key to open the door. So will Jesus give us a pass? The answer is no. And so our only hope today is to run to him. Learn to confess your sins to God on a regular basis. Memorize Psalm 139, 23, and 24. Write that down or highlight it in your digital Bible. Psalm 139, 23, and 24, and pray it every day. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That should be a regular prayer for us as Christians. See, God has not left us to deal with sin all by ourselves. He's given us his word and he's given us as Christians the spirit who lives within us so that we repent of our sins and seek holiness. And so I implore you, friends, to run to Jesus and rest in him. And I'm serious about finding someone to confess your sins to and to confide in them and to ask them to pray for you, for encouragement to turn from sin and to turn to God regularly. Kids that are here, that live in the home with mom and dad, you need to go to mom and dad and ask them for help. They're not going to look down upon you. They're going to be thankful that you're asking for help. And so run to mom and dad and ask them to hold you accountable. Ask them to pray for you regularly about your thoughts, about your words and actions that are contrary to what God's word says. They will love you without judgment. Spouses, turn to each other. Maybe you've never done this in your married life, but disclose yourself to your spouse. Ask your spouse to pray for you. And mean it. Single people, you're not alone here. You are not a plague upon this church. And if anyone's ever said that, they have lied to you. You're not. We need you in this body. And we want to be here for you, no matter what stage you're at in life. So come find us. We'll come find you and ask you how we can encourage you and help you walk with Jesus Christ in holiness. The Christian life is not meant to live alone. We need each other. So come find us. Even with the the weakest of words that you don't know what to say, you just need help. 
There are people in these rows that desire to do that. And so find them. Seek them out. And I pray that we would, as a church, grow in holiness so that when that day comes and we stand before Jesus, we, we can stand confidently that we have continued to learn to confess our sins and to forsake them and to rest in Him alone. Well, this morning we have the opportunity as we end our service to remember more clearly and more concretely in front of us what Christ has done for us as we share in the communion meal. God's judgment for the Jews through the pen of Paul for God's people was very certain. It would come to happen for the rejection of him, and God would be faithful to his word. And Paul's words to the Jews, to them, is the same for us. God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And so our response is to run to him. And the question I have as we partake of this is, are you ready to meet Jesus? Will you be able to stand before him because of what Christ has accomplished on the cross for you? God's judgment is certain for us, and so how will we escape it? It's through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for us. And we will not appreciate who Christ is and what he accomplished until we first understand who we are and our great need for him. See, God is merciful and he is just, and he will deal with sin. And God's justice and mercy have been reconciled in one place, the cross of Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, a holy God came and took on flesh. He lived a perfect life. He abided and and kept the law in every way. And he offered up himself as a selfless, sinless sacrifice. On the cross of his crucifixion, he, he took on himself the punishment of God for the sins of those who would turn and trust in him. And then God raised him in victory over death. And that, my friends, is what we come to celebrate when we partake of the Lord's Supper. When we take this meal, we are rehearsing the gospel of what Christ has done for us. When we take the meal together, we're remembering it. We remember what Christ did for us. And yet we want to, as a church family, encourage growth and holiness. We, so we encourage you, as Paul says to the church in Corinthians, to examine yourself before you come to the Lord's table. We realize that as God's special people, the ones called by his name, we must not allow unrepented sin to continue in our lives, whether a judgmental attitude towards others or a self-centeredness or anything else. Allowing unrepented sin to abide in our life, lives lies uh, about God who has called us. And when we allow that to happen in our life, it deceives the world about what God is like. And so we're to repent of those sins. God is committed to his own holiness and God is committed to the holiness of his people. And so I would encourage you as, as the bread and the juice is passed this morning to take stock of your life. If there is unconfessed sin, go to him in that time and confess your sins. 
As the ushers come to serve, you can start coming up now. I want to give a, a word of warning. This meal is only for Christians because only Christians understand and accept the gospel. So if, if you're not a Christian, if, you've, if you're not in obedience to Christ, not faithfully connected to a church family, then we encourage you not to partake of this meal this morning. And as they pass out the communion elements, I, I want us as a church to, to wait, okay? To wait till everyone has it and we'll partake it together as one family together in the meal. So let's pray. Will you join me as I pray? Father, we thank you for sending your son Christ to die on the cross for our sins. His body and blood shed for us on the cross redeems us from our sins and places us in the family of God through faith. And we remember you as we eat together this, this bread and this juice of what you've done for us. And we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.